You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us. So, goodness, it was almost, it was a little over 22 years ago, my wife and I had a life-changing conversation. We were driving around this area, the Miami Lakes area, because we were praying about coming and starting Calvary, and we were hungry, so we decided to stop at McDonald's and uh, split a meal. So, back then, you could get the number two meal. I know the numbers have changed, but back then, the number two meal was the two cheeseburger meal. I'm old enough to remember that. So the two cheeseburger meal, and then um, we upgraded the fries to the bucket of fries. Anybody remember the bucket of fries? Yeah, okay, one person, all you, two people, all right, a few people. We can start a small group, and all we're going to do is eat French fries. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, but the bucket of fries was amazing because it was literally a bucket. It was like basically three large fries into one container and, uh, and, then we, and then a drink. And so anyway, so we both, we're driving around and talking about starting a church, praying and, and all this, and then we're eating. And, and then my wife says to me, she says, I'm not going to eat any more fries. And I was like, oh, great. I mean, why? And, um, and she says, well, because there's a hair in the fries. And I'm like, care, just move it out of the way. And uh, <clears throat> she's like, no, I'm not going to eat them. You do whatever you want, but I'm not going to eat them. So I eat a few more. And then you know how, maybe you've experienced this, uh, but you get to a certain level of like the fries, they're, they're, you're maybe like, let's say 70% done. Then you start choosing, like right now you start flipping it around, like what do I want to end with, right? So you start flipping it around. So I look over and I'm like going through the bucket of fries and, um, and okay, let me explain the hair. <clears throat> now, I personally don't own a brush, all right? So, but I know people who do. Um, but you know how... There's times when you clean out a brush and you just kind of go through like, you know, like this and you kind of get through it and then there's like this ball of hair. That's what was at the bottom of the bucket of fries. <clears throat> and so anyway, so I get to the bottom there and, and, and then, and I say to my wife and I, I, I'm like, why didn't you tell me there was a hairball in the fries? And she says, I did. I told you there was hair in the fries. And I'm like, oh no. You said there was a hair, and we are a million miles from a hair to hair. And anyway, this goes back and forth because, listen, just one letter. And if you've been married for longer than 15 minutes, arguments have been started over less. <laughs> one letter, A, is what started this whole thing. And this is, and this is just the reality, is a bad communication can turn any situation into a hairy one. And um, I've been sitting on that all week, so I appreciate you responding well. So, <clears throat> but listen, uh, honestly, I spend my entire life communicating in different settings, and I, I, I'd like to think I've learned some things about communicating with people, but one of the things that I've observed is that so much of conflict that people have begins with communication that's taken the wrong way. And so, and this is true in any relationship. It's true in marriage for sure. You ever got into an argument and you said all the right words, but somehow your inflection wasn't appropriate, right? Like one of you, I'm not saying who, but one of you, she says, um, <laughs> it's not what you said. You want to finish it? It's, oh, you've heard this before. So 
<laughs> it's not what you said, it's how you said it. And so this is what happens. This is why a couple can be talking about the same thing. They can use the, say the same sentence and mean totally different things. And so once again, so let me give you an example. How about the, this, this sentence? I have nothing to wear. What does that even mean? Well, it depends on if you're a man or a woman, right? If a, if a man says, I have nothing to wear, let me explain what that means. He has opened the drawers in his dresser and it's, all he sees is wood. <laughs> like that's all that's there. It's like, wow, I have nothing to wear. That man's wife can go, can step into a walk-in closet loaded with clothes, not seeing the hundreds of selections and combinations available and say, wow, I have nothing to wear. And one of the things that I've learned, and this is just my observation, um, is that, and when I say observation, I mean I read it in a book. Um, <clears throat> And this is what the book said, and, and I happen to know the author, so I just trust her. But she, she said this, um, and she said that when um, a woman wears something new, it doesn't have to be brand new, it could just be new to her. She has this feeling of attractiveness that happens when she goes somewhere and no one has seen her wearing what it is that she's, she's wearing. Friend's house, party, a wedding, whatever. And so, but then if you're going to another function, and all your friends have already seen you wear that. It's like, I can't wear that. Well, why? Does it fit? Is this good? Like, well, that's not really the point. It's just that all my friends have seen, I can't wear that. That's not what I have to, that, because my friends have already seen me in that. And so now um, she's looking for something that her friends haven't seen her in. This is why I think women a lot of times want to move to a new town. <laughs> Make new friends. Now no one's seen me in anything. This now is because the wardrobe is totally opened up. So once again, when, when, a, when a woman says, I have nothing to wear, she's saying, I have nothing that makes me feel beautiful. When a guy says, I have nothing to wear, that man is making a statement of survival. There's just, there's nothing there, right? And so the point is, right, is that learning to communicate um, and understanding not just what we say, but what the other person hears and how to resolve conflict is at the heart of how every marriage, every friendship, and every working relationship functions. So we're going to walk in on, and if you weren't here last week, it's okay, we'll do our best to catch you up, but we're going to walk in on an ongoing conversation between Jesus uh, and the religious leaders. And when I say conversation, it's more of a um, argumentative attack, you know, that they're just really bringing towards Jesus. But Jesus and the religious leaders are not agreeing. Some of the problem is, is that the religious leaders don't like how Jesus applies the law of God in certain ways, and that's part of the argument that's happening here. And, um, <clears throat> and they had this attitude where it's like, if you don't agree with us on every point, you are our enemy. It really makes me think that these guys are on Twitter, um, because isn't that what's happening in our culture, right? That it's like, if you don't agree with me on every single point and approve of every single thing that I do, then you hate me and we have to be mortal enemies. Which, by the way, let me just tell you this at the outset, that is always the sign of a weak argument. You know, every person grows when there's an exchange of ideas. It's the, oh, wait, oh, it's the way it works from the beginning of time. And, um, but if you can't, if anyone who cannot have a conversation with someone they disagree with, but instead would rather blow up the relationship, that's not a sign of having a strong position. Um, instead, it's a sign that they and their argument are so fragile that it can't be tested because it will most likely break. So in Jesus's interaction with these religious leaders. 
we are going to see Jesus respond and deal with conflict in such an amazing way. And I really believe there's so much application for us. There's tons of theology in here that we've got to deal with, but there's tons of application for us on how to deal with conflict, how to deal with difficult people, and how to actually, in the end, win the relationship. So we're going to start in <clears throat> Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 22. Here's what it says. It says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitude were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against itself. How, can, how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, <clears throat> surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or... How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, first thing I want to show you about dealing with when you're in an argument, you're in a, a disagreement, first thing is this if you're a note taker, that is don't make it personal. Now, I want you to follow the logic of Jesus in this. Jesus heals a guy who is blind, mute, and demon-possessed. We can all agree this guy is suffering and dealing with a lot of problems. And then the people see that, the common people, they see that and they say, could this be the son of David? That's them saying, is this the Messiah? The religious leaders are so offended by that, they explain by saying, well, he casts out demons because he's in league with the devil or Beelzebub. Now, uh, Beelzebub is one of the gods of the Philistines. And if you're not aware of that, the Philistines were the perennial enemies of, is of ancient Israel in um, the beginning of the monarchy in the Old Testament. And, um, and so in their culture, Beelzebub, in the Philistine culture, Beelzebub was the prince of demon or their version of Satan, which of course just adds to the insult. And Jesus gives this explanation of how that line of reasoning makes absolutely no sense and just kind of starts walking them through it and then puts the pressure on them. Um, so what he says is, is that if I'm in league with the devil, why would I cast the devil out, right? And so he presents this argument that just shows that, they aren't, that the religious leaders are not speaking theologically. Instead, they're just speaking emotionally. So he's, Jesus says that divided kingdoms don't last. So if I'm working with the devil, I wouldn't be setting people free who are under his control. The other thing that he says is, he says, you have sons or literally disciples who cast out demons, but somehow you think that's godly. So how is it that when I do it, it's wrong, and when they do it, it's right, but we're both doing the same thing? And it's this perfectly logical argument that reveals that it has nothing to do with how Jesus interprets it. So they just don't like Jesus, and they're just committed to opposing him. Now, the cool thing is, is that... Um, the way that these, the, the, the religious leaders, the chief priests, they, they, they always had disciples, people that were learning from them. And so they would send out their students to go. And if there was some demon thing, they would go cast out. They're like, oh, go cast out this person who's having some issue. And, um, and, and so, and you see that. And what I love is, 
in the book of Acts, and if you're not aware, the book of Acts kind of picks up where the gospels leave off. So Jesus, we read about Jesus' ministry. Jesus is arrested. Jesus dies. Jesus is buried. Jesus rises again. And then people are like, well, what happened after that? Well, the book of Acts tells us the story of how the church was born and how the, the church started growing all throughout that region and throughout the known world. And so we have this little vignette in uh, Acts chapter 19 about one of the priests that Jesus was talking about, um, or one of them, if not these exact guys, and one of their buddies. So check this out. It says, some Jews uh, who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So this is seven, um, uh, seven, whether they were literal sons or whether they were his disciples, it's it's a similar word in uh, Greek. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Paul I know, or Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And this part's so awesome. Um, I would love to have been here for this. And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all, and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And uh, once again, man, I gotta, I'm streaming this. I'm going to get to heaven, and I am streaming this because I just want to see how this really went down. Um, seven Jewish exorcists streaking after they've been beat up by a demon-possessed guy. I mean, that just, that just makes for good comedy. And, um, and I could make a joke here, but I won't um, because someone should have warned the streakers to know that their end was in sight. And... Um, <clears throat> Really? Their end wasn't, okay, forget it. You know what? You know what I also understand is that you have, there's a certain level of sophistication that it takes to really get all the humor that is being dispensed, all right? And some of you lack it, unfortunately. So I'm sorry to be the one to tell you, but we can work on it. That's what I am saying is that we can work on it. A year from now, you'll be dying when I tell that joke. So now, Verse 25 that Jesus says is something that every married couple should memorize. That a house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, let me, let's explain this for a minute because a lot of times people think that unity means uniformity. It doesn't. Unity means that we're different, but we agree that we're headed on the same direction because um, there's trust and because we're all following Jesus. In marriage, sometimes we think that unity means, well, She's got to agree with him because, you know, he's the leader, and that means he's always right. And, and, that, uh, and what we think is, and that kind of becomes a caricature in the church, right, is that we think that that's the case. And once again, it, it's, it's not necessarily what we're, what we're called to. What we're called to is unity, not uniformity. But sometimes we think that it looks, well, let me have you watch this. So, <coughs> ever since I was born, I've been trained to serve you. Yes, I know this, but I would like to know about you. What do you like to do? Whatever you like. (laughs) What kind of music do you like? Whatever kind of music you like. Look, I know what I like, and I know you know what I like because you were trained to know what I like, but I would like to know what you like. For instance, do you have a favorite food? Yes. Good! What is your favorite food? Whatever food you like. Are you saying that no matter what I tell you to do, you will do? Yes, Your Highness. Anything I say you do? Yes, Your Highness. Bark like a dog. A big dog. 
Now, not that I'm opposed to it, but <laughs> I am joking. And I know that there's a price to be paid for that joke later. And so, now, but this is what everybody thinks, right? Is that, well, that unity means everybody just agrees. And listen, can I, can I just tell you this? I mean, I, I joke about it, but it's not the best way to live. It's really not. Unity in a family means that we trust each other and that we're working together towards the same goals. Um, one of the things that I love in Proverbs 31, which is this wonderful chapter about um, this very godly woman. But one of the things that it says in, in verse 11, it says, her husband can trust her and she will greatly enrich his life. Listen, being the leader doesn't mean you're always right. Um, it doesn't mean you're the ultimate authority and it doesn't mean that you're smarter. Being the leader means that you are responsible no matter what happens. Being the leader means you point your family to the ultimate authority that is Jesus and the scriptures. And being the leader means you sacrifice your desires for the sake of your family. My friends, that is biblical leadership. And unity in our homes comes not just blindly agreeing with dad because, you know, dad's the smartest person in the room. No, instead we present ideas and there's discussion and conversation because just because you're the leader doesn't mean you always have the best idea. But as a leader, we always want to get it right wherever the idea comes from. That we always want, we, that's the goal. And we want the people that we love to feel heard and included. You see, this is why in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Because what Jesus says is true for every home in this room. That a house divided cannot stand. It will eventually crumble. But if that's the case, then the inverse is also true, that a house united will never fall. Well, <clears throat> he's going to go on in verse 31, and he says this. It gets pretty heavy. He says, therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit, brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. If you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you, the first is we said, don't make it personal. The second thing is this, is that some words can't be taken back. And that's an important thing. Now, before we get to the application of this, we've got to kind of deal with the theology of this on the front end. The section opens with a therefore, which means it connects it to the section before where the Pharisees are attributing the work of God to Satan. 
Now, the idea shows up, this idea of what Jesus says, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, uh, it shows up in a lot of preaching and, and messages that I've heard over the years. And honestly, I, I see it presented in such a weird way um, because I think that as we read through the text, um, one of the ways that you interpret the Bible, just as you're not, you're not aware, you don't like insert the interpretation. What you do is you draw it out. And that's really the key. That's why every verse that you read, you read it in its context so that you understand what's happening. So let's understand this. So let's start with understanding what is the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives? Well, the good news is we don't have to decide that. Jesus told us what that means. He says this in John chapter 16. However, when he, the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth and he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me and he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. What is Jesus saying? That when the Holy Spirit is given, and we saw the Holy Spirit was given in the book of Acts chapter two, when the church was born, he will lead people to Jesus because the Spirit is leading us into all truth. Who is the truth? Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So this, the work of the Holy Spirit is to lead us to Jesus, draw us closer to Jesus, and have us grow in Jesus. But when we continually reject the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, uh, there is a point, and we don't know where the line is, but there is a point where we cross it and we have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as we read it in the text, is this continual rejection of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and eventually God confirms that decision. We see this in the book of Exodus when Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and continually say, this is what the Lord God says, let my people go. And nine times, they go 10 times, Nine times it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And the 10th time it says this, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh had continually hardened his heart. And then at the end, God confirmed the decision that he, Pharaoh, had made. And I've run into people over the years. And once again, I, I, I wanted to take a minute to talk about this because I think that there's these moments where people hear a teaching and they're like, oh no, I hope I haven't done that. And so I've run into people over the years and they'll say, I'm so worried. And they are so, they got to meet with me or talk to me or they call and they're like, I don't, I think I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What do I do? And I'll say to them, I can tell you with 100% certainty that you haven't. <clears throat> they're like, how do you know I haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I'm like, because you care if you have. That's how I know. Because no one who commits the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit cares if they did. And the fact that you care tells me that you haven't. And so Jesus now talks about that, and then he transitions and talks about within the same realm of conversation, and he says that he starts talking about this familiar illustration that he gives where he talks about good trees producing good fruit, bad trees producing bad fruit. And so, um, and this is something that he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount when we were in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's something that he talks about here. He's going to talk about it again at length in chapter 15. But the idea is, is that if you want to know what your life is made of, check out what your life is producing. And one of the things that he talks about in particular is, uh, when he says in verse 37, uh, he says that by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. So if you want to know what kind of fruit your life is producing, look at the words that you speak. Because Jesus says that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so what kind of fruit your life is producing is dependent on what's in your heart because what's in your heart comes out in the words that you speak. And so once again, if we're going to do this self-reflection, then we got to ask ourselves, what kind of words do we speak? 
I mean, are they kind words? Are they wise words? Are they biting words? I mean, what, what, what are they? And listen, if you, by the way, if you want to transform your marriage, if you want to transform a relationship virtually overnight, this is the way to do it. Start using different words, and it will put you on the fast track to transforming your relationships because people will always flock to those whose heart are producing words that are good fruit. Now, let me talk to the married couples. From How many of you are married? Can I ask that? Okay. Oh, wow, a lot of you. Very good. All right. Now, those of you who are not married, you're welcome to listen in. And maybe you want to be married, you probably should listen in. But this is, if you wanted to, you know, check your email, this might be your moment. Um, if, if you don't want to hear this, but this is important. So husbands and wives, let me talk to you. <clears throat> the, what, the, what the voice of your parents was when you were young, the voice of your parents when you were young was the most powerful voice in your life. What the voice of your parents was when you were young is the voice of your spouse when you are married. It is the most powerful voice in your life. This is why you can go to work and someone says something rude to you and you're able to just blow it off because you don't really care what they think. But you go home and your spouse says something that's half as rude and it goes off like a nuclear bomb. Why is that? Because that is the power that words have from those who we're closest to. And this is why so many couples don't have unity and this is why so many couples lack trust in their relationships because they are using words that break down trust and break down intimacy. This is why the book of Proverbs gives us this warning. It says this in Proverbs 26. I put it in your notes. It says, just as damaging as a madman shooting a deadly weapon is someone who lies to his friend and then says, I was only joking. You see, if you want a marriage where you de-escalate conflict and you are as close as possible in every way, then use different words, all right? So let me give you a couple. I put in your notes. Number one, speak encouraging words to each other. <clears throat> speak encouraging words. Proverbs 12 says, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And I, I, I tell guys this all the time, is that guys, we've got to get more precise with our words. Sometimes we don't, well, you know what I meant. No, she didn't know what you meant. And nobody else knows what you mean either. You got to say what you mean. And um, because when we're sloppy with words, it creates problems. And too many of us, we just, we fail to realize the power and impact of the words that we use. And then we give the thing, of, oh, I was only joking. And that's why we're careless with our words too often. Um, I was, it was a couple years ago, I was at Home Depot with my son. You know how when you go into a store, um, like a few people walk in, you kind of see them throughout your entire stay at the store because you're going like you're going down the aisles kind of with them. Well, that's what was happening is that I was there with my son and there was this mom with her son going through the aisles and picking stuff up. And, and it was just killing me the way that I heard her talk to her son. Every time she would want to leave an aisle to go to the next aisle, she'd say, let's go, stupid. And, uh, and, it was, and once again, I'm not trying to judge this lady. I don't know what's going on in her life and whatever, but I mean, it just broke my heart every time she would say that to her son. And, uh, and, and, and I was just, uh, I was thinking that, and, and I'm just thinking like this kid, because he doesn't know any different. And he's going to grow up thinking that about himself. And you know, the saddest part to me is that other people are going to say something to this kid when he goes to school or later, and, and he's going to think somehow that that's acceptable. It's okay to be spoken to like that, because the people who were closest to him spoke to him like that. Listen, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, but I think one of the things that my wife and I have done very well is talking to our kids with respect because <clears throat> I want my kids, we talk to our kids with respect because I want them 
if when they walk out into the world or they have an interaction and someone speaks disrespectfully to them, I want it to feel weird. I want it to feel like, wow, no, people don't talk to me like that. Because if we aren't careful, we start to think things about ourselves that simply aren't true. I was out with my son uh, probably about a year ago, and I was telling Xander a story. And, and he says, Dad, I don't remember that. You know I have such a bad memory. And I'm like, dude, why would you say that? And he's like, you know, because I forget things. And I'm like, Xander, let me fill you in on something. Everybody forgets things. That doesn't mean you forget everything. And, uh, and he just kind of kept on about how he has a bad memory. And I'm like, Xander, if you, had a, if you really had a bad memory, how would you remember that you had a bad memory? <laughs> and I don't know... Um, whatever that verbal jujitsu was that I did, <coughs> he was like, wow, that's a good point. How would I remember? That stuck with him. Xander is now our family historian. <laughs> this kid remembers everything that has happened in his life with total recall. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were having this conversation, and he was reminding me of something that I said involving him, giving him and his sisters money. And I was like, I have no recollection of that, Your Honor. And, uh, and, and he's like, yeah, Dad, remember we were in the kitchen and you were standing on this side of the kitchen, you were eating a donut, and you said, yeah, I probably shouldn't have this second donut, but I'm like, stop! How much money do you need? But you gotta stop recounting my questionable life choices back to me. And, and, and I'm telling you, listen, if we only speak death, into our marriage, to our kids, to our relationships. Don't be surprised when there's no life. We've got to encourage each other with our words. And you know what that involves? This is number two, eliminate sarcasm. And I know that I'm mostly speaking to men here. Um, because guys, let me just tell you this. No man um, has ever gotten married to the woman of his dreams because she fell in love with his biting sarcasm. And she's like, oh, he's like, He's like an Olympian with the, his sarcasm. It's just, it's so wonderful. His words are like a javelin, you know? And like, nobody is saying that. But lots of relationships end because of sarcastic comments that cut. That's why uh, the Apostle Paul would say this. He says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. And let me tell you that sometimes you hear that and you're like, what, I can't say anything? Um, which, by the way, that hasn't, it doesn't say don't say anything. Uh, but I will tell you this, and this is important. Um, we, the, the most common sound at my house is the sound of laughter. And I can't even tell you how much joy it, tells, it, it gives me to tell you that. But that is the most common sound in my house is um, the sound of laughter. Second is the sound of someone playing guitar. That's a different conversation, <laughs> all right? <clears throat> With kids and other people who play guitar in my house. And, um, but the point is this, and, and I want to tell you something. And this is because as someone who is a recovering sarcasm expert, um, I'll, I'll tell you that um, I used to be super sarcastic, and, 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 I, and I stopped. And you can ask my wife this if you don't believe me, but I stopped sarcasm. And, uh, and people ask me, how did you stop? And I'll say, all right, I'm going to tell you. And you may want to write this down. What would happen is, and listen, I've always been pretty good on my feet, so I can come up with something. I can always come up with something pretty quick. And um, so here's what happens. I come up with a sarcastic comment, and then here's what I do. I don't say it. You may want to write that down. So you think it, and then you don't say it. You just swallow it. 
and it's okay. There's no carbs. It's just swallow. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, and here's what, here's what happens. You know what happens is if you come up with it and then you don't say it and you just swallow it, eventually you stop coming up with it. You start thinking of different things because the reality is, and let me just tell you this as someone who's told regularly that he's funny or whatever, sarcasm is the poor man's wit. All right. So Whenever I hear someone just always using sarcasm, I'm like, oh, he's really not that funny in real life. Like, so he's got to come up with that. So instead, like, you know, you know if you be witty, wit, wit is good. Sarcasm, not so good. All right. And the reality is, and this is the other thing that's important, is that we live in a world that is so encouragement depleted. Now, let me explain something. And I read a great book on this subject last year about the algorithms of social media. And that's what the whole book was. And it was not very exciting, but it was really interesting. But here's what um, <coughs> the social media algorithm, algorithm is built to keep you engaged. And what they have found is, is that getting you angry is what keeps you engaged. And that's why you stay on these social media networks as long as you do, because you get mad. And so it's all about giving you a dopamine hit. And the thing that gives you a big, a big dopamine hit is getting mad. And so that's why you stay on. Like, you ever notice that you get on social media and then you stay on until you get angry and then you close it? Like, don't you realize that's all by design? That's why someone posts a video, hey, here's my new cat, it gets four likes. Someone posts something about their political views, it's 5,000 comments, right? It's like, that's not because people, well, I guess people don't like cats, but that's not really the point. But the, the, the point is, is that social media is built to enrage you. It's built to make you angry. And because most of it is sarcasm and most of it is just snarky comments um, and just some of it is just outright rage. And, and this is the problem. And some of us know people that are just, li- they're not just, they're just like that in real life, right? There's people that can turn anything, any blessing, they can turn it into a bummer in no time. You've got at least one person like that in your family. And if you're Cuban, you've got multiple, <laughs> all right? <clears throat> and no one's gonna disagree Especially if you're Cuban, you're like, well, snap, that man's speaking the truth right there. And so, but I'm telling you, you talk to somebody, you're like, hey, we just want to tell you we're having a baby. And they can just take anything, right? You're like, wow, that's so amazing. Children are a blessing. No, it's like, yeah, don't expect to sleep anytime soon, right? You know how much kids cost now, right? <coughs> Why? Like, don't be like that. I mean, you ever share like, man, I have this dream to do, to do that. And you know this, that there are people that if you have this idea or like, man, I just have this thing in my heart, there's people that you know you should never breathe a word of that to. So don't be that guy. Um, I, I was telling my kids this story the other day is that Fred Smith, who's the founder of FedEx, he wrote the business plan for Federal Express while he was getting his MBA. And the professor gave him a C minus. It was C minus, and then he wrote underneath it, this is totally unrealistic. I have several questions I'd love to ask that dude. And what I want to do is write the questions and FedEx him a package. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and the, <laughs> and the problem is that there's just too many professors in this world, not enough Fred Smiths. Commit yourself to encouraging people. Listen, there are millions of people who, who will tell you why it can't be done. Be the person who, tell, who, who encourages people and tells them that with God, nothing is impossible. That's why Proverbs 10 says, the words of the godly encourage many, but fools are destroyed by their lack of wisdom. All right, here's a third one. <clears throat> and that is be generous with your words. Some people 
withhold compliments, withhold encouragement, withhold um, sharing loving statements with people. Like commit to yourself that you're not gonna be that person. You know what I did? I made this decision that when I was on the phone with my friends, I was gonna tell them I loved them when I got off the phone. Do you know how weird that was the first time? And I did this, I do this every time I'm on the phone with my friends. I'm like, hey man, love you bro, we'll talk soon. And I do this every time. And the first time I did it, hey man, love you. And they're like, what? What did you say? I said, I love you, man. They're like, all right. Are you okay? Are you dying? No? All right, dude. Hello? It was weird. You know what happens now? Every time I'm on the phone with my friends, they tell me they love me first. And this is just the power um, of just, you know, and I talk about this all the time, right? You know, do do you want to be a thermometer or do you want to be a thermostat? Be the person that changes the temperature of the room. Um, There is this great proverb in Proverbs 27 that says, open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. If you love someone but you never tell them, what is the point? Tell them, tell people that you love them. Go out of your way to be generous with your words. Um, if If you love somebody, tell them. If you're proud of somebody, tell them. Speak words of life to the people that you love. And, 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 and I want to challenge you to do that. And, um, you know, so about a year ago, well, maybe it was two years ago, we were in our old house. I ordered pizza for our family for dinner. And uh, the pizza guy shows up and I asked him to come inside to get uh, the money to pay. Um, I, didn't, I, realized, I didn't realize I had cash, so I had to borrow the money from my kids. That's not really part of the story. <coughs> but nonetheless, so I borrowed the kids and then they were negotiating with me a level of interest and I'm like, how dare you? You know, what, you know where you got this money from? Anyway, um, so, uh, anyway, so the guy steps in, and uh, now the way at our house in our entryway, um, we have uh, we have pictures of our family, and that's kind of how we decorate. We have just pictures of our family everywhere, and um, and so he steps in and he says, uh, he says, sir, you have a you have a lovely a home and a beautiful family. And I could have just said thank you, but I decided, like, I'm going to, I want to do something. And I just have a heart. Like, I was a delivery guy when I was in college. And so I was delivering, um, all, you know, till, till in, from, like, 5 p.m. until late in the evening um, so that I could go to school during the day. And, and, and I was paying for college as I went. And, um, <clears throat> and I said to him, and I said, you know, I started out delivering food just like you. I said, and you know what happened? I said, I was delivering to pay for my education. I said, and God changed my life. I said, so here's what I want to tell you. If you will walk with God and trust him, he will do in your life what he's done in mine. And there is something so amazing that took place when I said that to him because he was just kind of, you know, whatever, just standing there. And I said to him, I'm like, if, if, you know, if, if you will walk with God and, and trust him, he will do in your life what he did in mine. That kid stood straight up. He went from slouching to standing straight up. Why? Because someone just stopped and just spoke a word of blessing in his life. And then he said to me, true story. He goes, are you the pastor of Calvary? Are you Pastor Bob? And I'm like, yes, I am. By the way, let's add a little bit to that tip uh, just to, uh, I want to make sure I maintain a good testimony. And so, (laughs) now we're going to talk about this to an even greater degree when we get to chapter 15, because Jesus is going to expound on this idea about what comes out of your heart. So we're going to talk about that. But suffice it to say for now that whatever is in your heart is coming out in your words. So if you want better words, change what you're allowing in your heart. All right, last couple verses and then 
and then we're going to be done. Verse 38, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. And if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing, if we're gonna talk about how to deal with arguments, here's the last one. And that is that having peace takes humility. This is an amazing response by Jesus because he has been, if you read this whole chapter that we've been looking at, it starts out with him healing a guy in the synagogue they get upset. He leaves. He heals a whole bunch of people. Then he heals someone who is um, blind, mute, and demon-possessed. And then he does all that. Then he speaks to them, and then they're like, hey, we want to see a sign. It's like, another one? I mean, honestly? So that's why he says that an evil generation seeks after a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the one you don't like, and that is the sign of the prophet Jonah. That just like how he was in the belly of the fish for three days, um, Jesus is going to be in the heart of the earth. That is buried for three days. Now, <clears throat> some people have a problem with the Jonah story, and they're like, come on, it's so unrealistic. He got swallowed by a fish and then barfed up on the beach. And, um, and, and, and I always say, I, I'm, I'm a believer in the Jonah story for a couple of reasons. The Bible says it, um, and that, you know, for me is good enough, but I know some people have um, challenges with that. The other thing, if you will just do a quick Google search, here's what you'll find. This, has, this exact issue of someone being swallowed and then spit up has happened a couple times. This is in the last two years. Um, it's, it, it's happened. So you can, you know, it's happening and it's well documented. And then the third thing is, Jesus believed that it happened. And when you rise from the dead, I'm always going with what you say. All right? So those are my reasons. Now, Jesus brings this up for a couple of reasons. First, because he says this is what's going to happen to him, that he'll be buried for three days. The second thing that he brings us up is because he says the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation. That is, the Jews that were alive when Jesus was there preaching and ministering. Because, he says, the men of Nineveh repented at Jonah's preaching. Now, if you don't know the story of Jonah, um, we're not going to cover the whole thing. But suffice it to say, he was a prophet of God. He did not want to go. And so the other thing is, is that after the whole scene with the fish... He gets barfed up on the beach in, in Nineveh, and he's very upset. He agrees to go preach a message. He preaches what I think is probably the worst sermon in the Bible and um, tells them they're all going to get destroyed. And then these people repent, and he gets upset that they repented because what he really wanted was, that, was them to all be destroyed. It is like the opposite, right? Every preacher wants people to be saved. He's not. He's like, man, let's hope nobody comes forward. Let's hope nobody gives their life to God because let's just, I mean, I'm just waiting. Let's just let the fire consume them. You know, that's, it's like, all right, dude, relax. Uh, you might need some counseling. Um, so look at what happens. So this is after he gets barfed on the beach with the, with the fish. Here's what happens. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. 
Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. So he gets to the heart of the city and he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. Can I just tell you the sermon that he gives is horrible. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Peace out. Like no hope. Right? I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's brutal. Right? And yet, and, and I'm, I'm always thinking about this, right? I mean, I hear about, man, we preached this message and, and lots of people came to know Jesus. And, and I'm, I'm like, all right, I want to listen to that message, right? How did this guy do it? You know, whatever. And, um, but it's like, how did that work? And listen, there's always things working behind the scenes that we don't realize when a message is going forth. And let me <coughs> explain it this way. So it was about six years ago, my son and I, we went to Ikea and we bought these shelves because we turned his room into... Uh, we did all this shelving uh, because the only thing that my son has collected since he was three years old is Legos. And so he had all these Lego sets and he wanted to display them. And so we decided, okay, we'll just, we'll move some stuff out and then we'll just buy these, these white shelves and we'll just, we'll display them on there. And so, but the thing is my son, from the time he was three, he always wanted to play with Legos like they were action figures. The problem is, you know what happens when you play with Legos like they're action figures? They disintegrate. And then he brings me this pile of stuff. He's like, hey, we got to do some repairs, and, uh, which involves, you know, all day on a Saturday trying to figure out where's that one piece that's shaped like whatever that, you know. So I said, all right, forget it. So I introduced Gorilla Glue into the mix. And truth be told, the Lego movie, which was about not using Crazy Glue, is really what gave me the idea to start using Crazy Glue. But then I found that Gorilla Glue was better. <clears throat> so... Every time he would get a new, if he got a new Lego set for his birthday or Christmas or whatever, um, we would glue it so that even if he dropped it, it wouldn't, it would stay together. And uh, so what would happen is, is that I'd be, because when he was three, four, five years old, um, you know, it was mostly me building and him watching. And, um, but then he, I would start gluing a set and then he would just disappear and go play with his sisters and then come back once an hour to check on me. Like, hey, how's it going? Like, what are you, the foreman? All right, keep going. You get a break in 10 minutes. Uh, and so anyway, so one night I'm building something and I'm tired. So I'm about, I'm going to pack it up. I'm going to finish the next day. And he comes over. He's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, man, I'm tired. I'm going to just, I'm going to finish this tomorrow. He's like, come on, man, we can do this. And I'm like, who's this we that you speak of? Because I'm the one building it and you're nowhere to be found. He's like, all right, dad, look, I'm going to stay with you. All right. So I say, all right. And I open the bag. Once I open the bag, I'm committed. So then I open the bag and I start building and then he's like, all right, looks like you're doing fine. I'm going to go check on Mia, see how she's doing. I'll be back. An hour later, he's still gone. Now, now you know, Xander's 13. He's building all this stuff himself now. And um, <clears throat> so back to the shelving. My mom comes over our house, and, and uh, my son is like, Nana, let me, show you my, um, let me show you my room. And my mom walks in, and she's like, wow, Xander, this is the most Legos I've ever seen, uh, like all these sets. It's so amazing. He's like, yeah, I built them all myself. And I was in the hallway. I was like, what? And he's like, oh. And, and, and I'm like, excuse me? And he's like, oh, sorry. Yeah, my dad helps sometimes. I was so offended. And, uh, and now this is exactly what's happening with Jonah, right? He gives this horrible sermon, one sentence. There's no hope. There's no love, no forgiveness, no opportunity, just judgment. Like, hope you guys like the smoking section. You're all going to hell. See ya. And I'll be here all week. And, uh, and so he goes and listen, and everyone hears this message and repents. Why? 
Listen, make no mistake, Jonah is not building Legos by himself. What would cause the Ninevites to hear this message and repent? A couple of things that are important to note. Two plagues had just hit this area of Assyria and wiped out thousands of people. There was also a, a total solar eclipse that had happened that was a bad omen in that culture. And on top of that, geopolitically, there, was a, there were tribes from the north that were banding together and were gaining steam. In less than 100 years, those tribes would become the Babylonian Empire, would wipe out the Assyrians and conquer the known world at that time. And lastly, the Assyrians worshiped the, the god Dagon, who was the fish god. And so when they hear the story of Jonah being vomited out of the fish, that was a big deal to them. Jesus was doing the same thing. He's fulfilling messianic prophecies. He's healing people exactly what the Old Testament said the Messiah would be doing. And the religious leaders still won't believe in him. And Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will be the ones who judge you. They got one sentence and they believed. You are seeing miracle after miracle after miracle and you still won't believe. The last thing that he mentions is the queen of Sheba or the queen of the south. That's mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 10. This is a ruler that traveled over 1,200 miles to hear the wisdom of Solomon and it changed her life. And Jesus says, this woman came from the ends of the earth because she heard a rumor about the wisdom of Solomon. And you're seeing the miracles and hearing my teaching and you still won't believe. So what does that have to do with conflict? Because the thing that was keeping the religious leaders from experiencing peace and embracing the Messiah was pride. See, sometimes we act proud because we fear that humility will make us appear weak. And so we do everything to appear strong as though we have it all together. This is pride at its core. Pride tries to make everything in your life about you. And here's the thing that um, sometimes we don't, we don't realize is that, and we think, well, I don't know what people are going to think. You know what people are thinking about you? Not much. Why? People are dealing with their own stuff. <clears throat> but we are not going to move on and we are not going to grow until we stop thinking that it's all about us. When I was in college, I was a delivery guy, as I told you, at night, so I go to school during the day. And there was this one kid that I worked with and he was amazed by my sense of direction. And, um, and he wanted to be a delivery guy too, but this kid could get lost in his living room. And uh, so he asked me for help. And so um, he's like, I don't just know where to go. So I grabbed him by the shoulders and I turned his body and I pointed him north. And I said, okay, this is north. So let's start here. And he opened his eyes. He's like, I get it now. Everywhere I look is north. And I'm like, no, because you're not the center of the universe. And this is what pride does. It causes us to think that we are the center of the universe and that everything somehow revolves around us. The thing about pride is that pride is different than most other sins. Because you can tell you're doing most other things, right? Most other sins, you're not confused, right? Nobody's surprised they're committing adultery, right? Nobody jumps out of bed, whoa, you're not my wife. I had no idea, right? Nobody's surprised they've stolen money. Like, dude, it must have fallen out of, my, out of your account and into mine. Isn't it weird how that works? Right? No, pride is different. Pride is impossible to detect without God's help, even though everyone around us can see it. You see, pride makes us a fool because proud people cannot learn from their mistakes because they simply can't admit that they've made a mistake. And this is why proud people always make poor choices. 
because they always have to justify their decisions. They always have to double down rather than admit that they were wrong and then not repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And this is why there's conflict because there's not enough humility to admit that they're wrong. And you know, God loves us too much to keep us there. That's why he invites us to follow him. Because when you start following Jesus, you take on this different role. You humble yourself and you take the position of the learner. And when you take the position of the learner, it's possible to change. Jesus said that he, he came that in John chapter 10 that we might have a life, an abundant life. That is a life with overflowing joy. It's not a perfect life. It's not a problem-free life. But it's a life that's characterized by joy even in the midst of difficulties. And if we're going to experience joy, then at the most cellular level, we have to experience joy and peace with God. We have to experience joy and peace with the relationships that are closest to us. And certainly in our homes. And everything else begins to jet out from there. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you so much. Thank you for your love and thank you that you give us this promise that we can, um, as Jesus said, that our joy could be full. That's our hope. That's our prayer, God. We, we pray for conflict and arguments. And God, we pray that we would be peacemakers, not peacekeepers, but that we would be peacemakers. You said that we would be blessed. And so, Lord, that is our hope, that you would continue to transform us. Give us a humble heart that we might serve you well and lead well and that those, of us, those who don't know you might see you through the lives that we live. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.